Coming at you live from an undisclosed location. We are the J3 Amateur Hour Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the J3 Amateur Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan. I'm here with... This is Josh. Yoel. We've got a big episode tonight, guys. First of all, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Jordan. Yoel. Thank you. I think you guys are the first ones uh, to wish me a happy Father's Day. <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> Pretty much. I, I had my, my grandson... Wish me happy Monsters Day. <laughs> and they're telling me, no, it's Father's Day. And he insisted on happy Monsters Day. Uh-huh. So, but I appreciate the, uh, the happy Father's none of your, Day wishes. None of your kids wish you happy Father's Day? No. You didn't get calls? <laughs> calls? Yeah. No, I don't, get, I don't get calls. What about from... Yeah, pick like, me up. I, I did get a call. My kids said pick me up. <laughs> what about like maybe from your mom or something? No. I actually hung out with her yesterday. I You, you did mention that in passing, but uh, yep. do tell. I had a great time. I was at McCor for a bar mitzvah. I was out back, and I noticed uh, your mom and some of your family out there. So I cut through some weird fence thing, and I went and sat with them and schmoozed a little bit. They were it was like very in, nice. In their backyard, or they were like... I guess, do you call that a backyard? It might be a front yard. They live in the Chesterfields. Were they in front of the house, like in the driveway? Yes. Okay, so yeah, I guess the front yard. What did you guys talk about? We Podcast? went into some like kind of family, her family history a little bit. You know, how she wound up from Massachusetts to... New York or Israel, the whole thing. I don't know. Sure, she went to Highlight. Correct. <laughs> Formerly known as, or now turned into Hafter. But yep. Right. You talk about y'all at all? Yes. What did you guys talk about? His travel issues that he just had. Because let the yeah, listeners wel- be back, aware. Yo, welcome back. Thank you, Joel. Joel, you're very fancy right now. Thank you. I'll point that out. Not really. Was that a watch you're wearing? I am wearing a watch. Nice. I nice typically watch. don't. It's a very nice watch. Thank you. And uh, you had some issues this past week. My son and my uh, daughter-in-law, they had a, a baby and, and they had it in Toronto. So uh, we went a couple weeks ago. Just that was a while ago already. Yes. So we went yeah, in for the day. Here. Josh, relax. Yeah. Because well, they went to a camp to celebrate the birth. Wait, maybe he was concerned that no one, like, no one wished me like Happy Father's Day. So also no one wished me like Mazel Tov. But yeah, so we went in for the day a couple weeks ago and we came back. <laughs> They made Kiddush this, uh, this past Shabbos, and for some reason, we were unable to make, get like, any tickets to Toronto. So my wife was able to get on a Thursday flight, and I also had a Thursday flight, but it, originally it was supposed to be like a 2.30 Friday afternoon flight getting me into Toronto like 5 p.m. on Friday, and I was sort of like bugging out. Yeah, I was almost like thinking of just like hiding my passport and like pretending <laughs> like, oh, I can't find my passport, so I can't go, but let me ha- know how it goes. And then the, I was put on Porter Airlines. I never heard of it before. I guess it's like the Spirit Airlines of like uh, Air Canada. Well, how early did you leave for the airport? So my flight, I believe, was around uh, was it around five o'clock? Yeah, mid, no, it was around six o'clock. But it's like midway, and the Kennedy's a disaster. So I probably left my house around two thirty a.m. No, no, no. This oh, is okay, the afternoon. Okay, this is Thursday okay. afternoon, and I get there. I had to sort of you know prepare for the travel, a little tequila. And I get there, and I go to the gate. I get through. Obviously, it takes me like two minutes to get through security, so I'll have like two hours until my flight. Go uh, just, you know, hydrate a little bit. And I come back to the gate, and all of a sudden, it says canceled. And so Are you I by call, yourself? I was by myself. Okay. So I call a travel agent. I'm like, he, I'm like, it's canceled. Like, He's like, are you sure? It's not showing it. So it turns out he's like, okay, jump in an Uber and go to, go to O'Hare. Oh, so, so I take another Uber. I go to O'Hare. And this, so I'm on a 9.15 p.m. flight. All right, so remember, I already left my house at 2.30, so at O'Hare. Uh, luckily, I did purchase uh, two peanut butter and jelly uh, uh, bagels from, um, what's the- Lincoln Cafe. From Lincoln Cafe, because nice. I guess you can't order after 12.30. Uh, I do understand you were uh, Instagramming this entire- uh, Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so you're right. So I, I, when I'm- Do people respond? 
Yes. It's usually the, yes. It's usually around the, the same people and the same people are entertained. And most people either they're annoyed or... Do you do this because it lessens your stress? Is that why? Is that like a, one of the reasons? It, I'm by myself like you're for like several hours and I'm just bored. I got it. Basically. And then usually like I'll just like delete them all, all the stories like when I'm done. Like, okay, like I'm back home and back to my family. So I'll just like delete them all. <laughs> but um, so... So I get on the flight and, you know, I, so I didn't get to the house until one o'clock in the morning. So it just so happens to be that I was able, I was fortunate enough to uh, secure myself a tea time at this um, country club where they actually had the Canadian Open last week. It was like, you know, all over ESPN. So I actually was, I really wanted to get there in the evening. So I was actually fortunate enough to make that tea time at 8.48. Got there at one o'clock. I had to go to 6.30 Minion, operating a little sleep. Fast forward till Motsi Shabbos, then we have these tickets. Uh, I'm at nine. My wife is going to New York. Uh, you know, we're making a, a wedding in a couple months, so we need some uh, gown shopping. And so she's going to New York, and I'm going to Chicago. And and like people are like saying, oh yeah, like you know, last week we went through customs, and like we it took 20 minutes on a Sunday morning just to like pull into the airport. Like you just couldn't drop off. There was so much people. So I'm like, I'm already going crazy. They told that to the wrong person. Yeah. So my flight's at nine o'clock, and my wife's at nine thirty. So first I'm like, okay, two and a half hours. It's around 20 minute drive to get there. I'm like, okay, two hours to get through. I don't know. Is it enough earlier? And then she decides to change her ticket to 7:30. So I'm like, sweet. So I'll just I'll go with you in the Uber, and I'll we'll leave at 5 a.m. So and this right. way <laughs> you're, you're covered. Right. So basically, you know, we woke up around 4:15 this morning, which is 3:15 Chicago time. I guess the airport, of course, takes around 20 minutes to get through customs. So it's around 5.15 in the morning, about the time of like 5.20. And then there's another Chicago flight at 7 a.m. So I was actually fortunate enough to get in the 7 o'clock, and it all worked out. But I'm operating like a couple hours of sleep. And, well, you uh, look good. As Jordan oh, said thank earlier. you. Uh, let me ask you one quick question. When you sure. said you, you got to the house, was that a house you were like of an, another family you were staying at? Oh, or? by, by uh, my Michotanum. Okay. So you what, stayed what, at, at their yes. house. Was that weird walking in like at 1 a.m.? Did you feel weird? That they just left the door unlocked oh, and no okay. one like they yeah. didn't stay up to no They actually bond? left me food. Uh-huh. And, like I'm like, I'm not eating at one o'clock in the morning. So I just put it in the fridge. And, What's right. it like staying? I, I have issues in general staying at somebody else's house. Obviously there's a relationship there, sure. right? Your kids are married, but is is there a discomfort? Uh like, there is if, they, it, if there was a hotel on their corner, would you prefer the hotel? Yes. Because the hotel is a TV, but um, are they good hosts? They're excellent hosts, and like Shabbos morning, are you, are you drinking coffee with them? Let's see, Shabbos morning. Well, for, uh, the nice thing was we were staying in the basement, so we were the only ones in the basement. So it wasn't like you get out of your room and you walk into you had your people. own area, right? So you know, my kids were you know staying upstairs, and you know they actually uh, the other grandparents they were they were in town, so they were all staying upstairs, and we were the only ones downstairs. So that was you know nice. Shabbos morning, you know, I went up, my, what, my my grandson was there, so I was, you know, I got up 7.30, had coffee, and there were other people, that, you know, like my McDonald's <laughs> was like making salad. I'm just sort of, you know, sitting there drinking coffee. And uh-huh. What about like and fr- it was a long Friday Shabbos, night? Let's say it's a late dinner, and they're like, okay, let's now sit on the couches right. and talk, and you just want to go to sleep. So Shabbos was it starts, awkward to it, kind but, of... But early Shabbos in Toronto, like we didn't even like, like 9 o'clock was Shkia, was, was, you know, sunset. So like we didn't even start like till I don't know like eight o'clock or eight thirty the meal so oh. it just like took forever. Then it doesn't end until like ten something. Uh, like eleven. Wow. Like we didn't go sleep at eleven thirty. Like it was just it was like a long night. But like that Shabbos day was just a long long day because like Mincha we went to Mincha at eight thirty five Mincha, yeah, that's, that's which tough. is insane. Yeah, that's yeah. tough. My so. brother in law was in London on business a couple of weeks ago and Shabbos started something like ten o'clock. 
You said the meal went until 2 a.m. <laughs> Jeez. Right, but then you, like, you have, Okay, like, please like, hold. We have an ad here. This episode is brought to you by the law offices of Hal Garfinkel. My philosophy as a criminal defense attorney is simple. I will do everything possible to protect the rights of my client, to ensure their freedom. I've been a criminal lawyer for over 20 years. I began as a criminal prosecutor. Okay, I don't want to give away too much there. <laughs> Jordan, no, we did get an email this week, right, Jordan? Yes, we did. A very special listener, someone who we value very much. J3AmateurHour at gmail.com. J3AmateurHour at gmail.com. We, from Shlomit Kushner Storfer, the uh, daughter cl- of Rabbi cl- Moshe Kushner. Class of 1993. 93, Ida Kron? Ida of course. Okay, and the older sister of Yoni Kushner. It's funny, I grew up with Kush, and... Like I wasn't sure if he actually had siblings or not. They, I'm, they, I think they were much older, so they were all out of the See, house forever. I grew up. Our family. He was an only child. Our families were very close. I actually have two nephews, both named for her father. Right. You know. So I was grew up. There was just there were three girls and we were three boys. I mean, they were you know three girls were a little older, but Yoni was like he came like way after. Like <laughs> like he like it was a part of the family. Like um, you're right. Like she, there was three. There was one family of three girls and there was another family of just a boy. So like yeah, I believe what you're saying is correct. She did mention that uh, she's the only listener in her family. I'm mistaken, Jordan. She's the only listener that hasn't been mentioned yet. Oh, because I was going to say Yoni's dead to us if he has not been listening. He has. Okay. I've communicated okay. with him. And yeah, she pointed out that she was had to write in. She was laughing when I mistakenly referred to a cabin and a counselor in reference to Mosheva. <laughs> yes. And she said, Yoel. Correct, corrected by Yoel. Corrected by Yoel. Thank she said, Yoel, I know my dad was smiling with immense pride when you said that. He taught you well. It was a very nice email, very sweet, very kind. And it was nice to be noticed for my uh, my skills, my Mosheva skills. I came to Mosheva after the Rabbi Kushner days, so it's possible that my I, education they still was cra- not the same. Yeah, are they still crazy about like the different names? Like uh, back in the day, if like, you said like an English <laughs> term for like a cabin or like a, a counselor or just like something that like like oh I'm gonna you know it's like you know, break oh, break there's no break shut manucha you know it's <laughs> shut like, manucha yeah it's hilarious right, when I yeah. hear these terms like um, there's no canteen like they, if you good... say canteen he's like no 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 shechem like right. they like they always correct it so like I don't know if they do it now like I what don't... was the pool called oh the pool isn't um, it like a brecha in Hebrew so, I don't know yeah. there was some weird name for it or swimming well they the matzil a... was like the the lifeguards <laughs> no I was a matzil <laughs> that's great you all had a good call actually we were at your house a couple Fridays ago and you mentioned to someone. What are the two Yiddish words that are used in Shiva? Yes. Josh, would you know? No idea. The two Yiddish words? Two. Uh, I do not. But our guest is here. I'll be right back. I, I we see, ask, you know what? Wait, you know what? It'll let's be. Ask, no, no, yes, no, at, let's ask the listeners. Please email us at j3amateurhour at gmail.com if you can get the two Yiddish words that were used in um, Shiva. We should probably attach a prize to it. <laughs> The prize is what? An $18 gift certificate to Kesher Stam? An $18 gift certificate to Rocket Slice, which okay, Rocket is, Slice. should be opening soon. Within the next couple of years. Next couple of years. Yes. Yoel is a big hater of Rocket Slice. I'm not a big should hater. I've just been waiting <laughs> <He's> for it. <laughs> yes. I've been following them on Instagram. Your family consumes a lot of pizza. You've Very expressed. much so, yes. Probably two or three times a week we eat pizza. Oh, whoa. We got the big attorney here. Joe Rogan. (laughs) (laughs) We are very honored to welcome Hal M. Garfinkel 
on the show tonight. Hal, what's going on? How are you? I'm flattered to be here. I have absolutely no idea why you guys want me here, what I could possibly <laughs> say to you. I've heard you've got some really hush of guests, but hey, no old chat, old chat. Well, Hal, it's been hard to pin you down. We finally got you this Sunday night. It's probably been three weeks in the making. You want to tell the listeners what you've been busy with? Just sure, so that, sure. Let's say they could get, before I really introduce you, where have you been? Where have I been? I guess the question is where haven't I been? So I was recently retained on the Clark Street Beach murders. You guys heard about that. So Jalen Murray just retained me. So there's just been a ton of work done on that in the last three weeks. So I know when you guys were kind of coordinating meet, so I had that murder case. So that uh, kind of drew me away from kind of <laughs> my schedule more in town. And I run around a lot. And I've got cases all over. So, you know, it's kind of hard to kind of pin me down sometimes. Wait, I'm sorry. Jordan, my wife you just describe... It. How intimidating Hal looks right now! Like I was expecting a lawyer. He's coming with a suit. Hal, I mean, he's, he's here with the backwards hat. He's looking. looking he's looking, about to beat us up. You're I mean, that's very what buff. Like. Yeah, I'm not so at you, all. Do you work out? I mean, a little bit. A you little lift. I'm, I'm, I'm an old how man. How much you lift? I think he's doing some curls. <laughs> I think he's doing some curls before he got here. You guys are 60 years old. Yeah. I'm, I'm an old but man. Yeah. I'm an old uh, man. I'm scared. I'm not laughing. Okay, so Hal, so yeah. you were retained on a murder trial. You are a criminal defense attorney. I am. Okay, but let's take us back a step. Sure. And let's explain how you got to where you are, that you are, you know, representing uh, criminal defendants. So right. you grew up in the north suburbs. Uh, I grew up in Wilmette. I made my way ultimately to law school. I was uh, accepted at the very, very worst law school in Chicago, and I could only get in on the night program. And then from there, uh, somebody kind of saw me. Uh, Do you want to name that law school? John Marshall Law okay. School. <laughs> right. But there was, a, there was a guy, Marshall, who kind of took an interest in me, and uh, he said, you may want to consider criminal law and, and be a prosecutor. And it's a tough job to get. I mean, there's thousands of applications. They take about 20 guys a class. And I was lucky. I got in. Were you married at that time? Was I married? Uh, no. No, I was single when I first started. So you started working for the state's attorney? I did, yeah, the Criminal Prosecutions Bureau. Okay. And tell us what that, like, what was your first, you know, experience in there with the state's attorney? How did you sure. learn your way? Well, they put you through kind of like a rotation. So the first rotation is you do appellate work, but I just wanted to get into a courtroom. So I had to do that for about five or six months. Ultimately, it led me to traffic court where you do DUIs. And then the next assignment was municipal where you do like municipal prosecutions, for kind of low level stuff. And then you get on the homicide track. And that's where, uh, kind of where I went and I did felony review and then I was at 26th Street. I did that, but I was only in for six years. And so just to explain to the listeners, working you know, with the state's attorney and as the prosecution, just to make clear, that means you are going after the criminal right. defendants, right? right? You are trying to put people behind bars. We represent the government. That's yeah. probably the scariest job I know. It's a great job. It's a, bl <laughs> it's a blast. All right, I mean, so just it's a I blast. Mean, when, when you got into this, was it? Did you like? And I'm, I'm going to sort of like get a little yeshivish, you know? Yeah. Did you like the like the law part, or did you like the action part? You know, what I'm saying like there's a lot of action when it comes question. to you know crime. But, you know, I, I see. I know a lot of attorneys. You know, let's say Jordan, the transactional attorney. It's not as exciting. It's not it's at all. Legal, right. Transactional work is great. Right, but was it? Was I'm it, lying. Was I'm totally it, lying. <laughs> <laughs> was it the excitement that drew you in, or was it? Um, my trial ad professor had a real Kenny Mel test. He's now dead, but he just the way he described what the interaction, kind of the uh, integration between how detectives and prosecutors work, and how that also works with the streets. And I just dug that. I was just like, this is this is this is a job for me if I can do it. Was yeah. it like law, like learner SVU, where you worked a lot with the police and like kind it's of hand in hand? It's identical. It's, it's it's 
scary how similar. Really? Yeah, Law and Order kind of um, tracks what we do. Uh huh. So yeah, basically, no the co- you're working day to day with the officers that are arresting these people, and you're trying to get them to go to prison. Once you hit that rotation called felony review, then you are on the streets. Up to that point, you're in a courtroom. Felony Review is, is a unit that works 365 days a year. It works uh, two shifts of 12 hours each, uh, three teams. And whenever there's any kind of case from sex case, drugs, homicide, they give you an undercover car, they give you lights, and you drive out there and either go to the morgue, you go to the scene, or you go to an area station where there are people and you coordinate the investigation. It's a phenomenal way to really kind of get the nuts and bolts of, of a criminal investigation. Did you ever have uh, any times when the defendant uh, may have like threatened you or you were scared for your life because you were going after them? Oh yeah. 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 I, I, um, I prosecuted probably before you guys were born. Do you remember when the cola was burnt down? Yeah. There were a couple, there were about four or five synagogues that were burnt down. So where, I, I was, where was that? I don't know. Anything like about that, was, that was in 1994. I remember. Free, I so it, free was burnt right. and the cola was burnt down temple menorah, a number of synagogues. It was a coordinated kind of, um, kind of hit on our community. So I was fortunate enough to be on felony review and I was the uh, lawyer who took the statements on three terrorists that were in Chicago. It was coordinated with uh, anti-terrorist force out of, out of Washington, coordinated with Chicago. Um, and there were, there were threats, a lot of threats. Wow. But I, sur- but I survived. So what were some of the frustrations? You know, sometimes you see, I actually just finished watching a documentary on HBO it's called Burden of Proof. And it, it was kind of a, it basically had to do with an individual whose sister went missing, you know, 25 years prior. And he suspected that his parents had what to do with it. They, she had left a note, but nothing really made sense. No one else had entry into this locked subdivision. And, you know, there's, there's not much evidence. And it's part of like his search to try to prove that his parents did it or someone else. Right. You have a lot of cases where you could be personally sure that this defendant committed the crime. But if, you know, the police are not collecting enough for you to do your job, you're not going to take it to trial, right? Because you don't have enough. I mean, it's a very political process. So you'll get a case. I mean, and I was just at that point, just assessing whether or not there was enough evidence to get to a grand jury. But you had the state's attorneys and first assistants and wing commanders who make the ultimate decision. So I'm just a uh, kind of a, a... So you're not making that call? The state, I mean, or the I, state's attorney is making the call. On a more high-level case, the state's attorney makes the call. But our job in felony review was just to assess evidence and ask the one question, is there enough evidence to get to a grand do jury? Do you want to settle, or do you rather go after him at that point? We're talking about criminal cases, not settling civil cases. Right. No, but, just, but, even, but can't even criminal cases settle? I don't know. You know, you know they deal. do. The yeah, plea I mean, plea deal, yeah. right. It's not going to court. I mean. You know, I was in the office. I was a young kid. I, I, got, I came in at, like, 28. I, I was on the streets as a defense attorney pretty young. So I was only in there really four and a half, five years. In between, I was in yeshiva coming back and forth. I just wanted to try cases. I didn't really ask those, you know, those existential questions right. about innocence or guilt. I was like, give me a file, give me to a courtroom, and let me just start trying cases. That's really what it was. Okay, so there's not, there aren't cases in particular that stand out that, like, haunt you that's like, I needed to put this guy behind bars, and I could never get him. As a prosecutor? Yeah. Not really. No. As a defense lawyer, there's all kinds of cases sure. I've had. So I, I mentioned before, I think my uh, my favorite TV show is a show called First 48. Yeah. Like, yeah okay, so I, I, I watch it all the time. Right. Somehow, like, it puts you to sleep when you're watching, like, murder, like, and all that. <laughs> but anyway, so, like, there's sometimes, you know, when they decide, like, they know the guy's guilty, but they just don't have the evidence that they can't put it. Is there sometimes when the prosecutor's like, we're not going to be able to, you know, you know, you know, to, you know, put them behind bars, 
but at least for the six months of the trial, we're just gonna, you know, make their life hell, you know, by them having to go through it, as right. opposed to just saying, well, we don't have enough, so you're you can go back into the streets until we get enough on you, or we'll try, you know, we, we, we try you, and then you know you're you know for four months and you're holding, and then you found innocent, but you'll be back in the streets, but you wouldn't be back in the streets if you didn't try it anyways. You know, you have to remember, I've been out of the office right. for 29, I'm 60 years old. So I've been out for 29 right. years. So the memories of those cases sticking out where I felt there was enough evidence, I don't have those many memories. I really don't. But the guys, the men and women I worked with, they were ethical. Detectives were great. But do you sometimes feel, even as, as you know, a defense attorney, that sometimes, like, they don't really have, the you know, any sort of evidence, you know, against your... You know your I, defendant. Yeah, you know, against the defendant, but I always you know, go into a case like right. that. I I, do, I treat every case like I'm going to win, and right. they don't have enough. So I look at every case. And then there's a switch to the defense side, right? So right. you started as, and and it's a very common move, right? It is both for it is both the criminal white collar going from the prosecution and switching to criminal. Why, why is it common? I'm just curious. Because you can make money. In more more money. It's, in, it's yeah, and I was going broke. We couldn't live. We could uh -huh. not survive on my salary. It was rough. Right, and is, did you, you should try being a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah. So, at what point do you switch to defense? So, I had uh, gotten married. My wife was pregnant. We were living in a one bedroom apartment on Greenleaf, in a garden apartment, and it was just it was insane. We were just not making it. And I finally looked at her and said, "I said, hey, now's the time." And we had I had no money. I mean, I had nothing. I went out to Best Buy, bought a computer in 1994, and I opened up a practice in a crack house on Armitage and Polina. You just changed like that? I did. I just went into my into my bureau chief when they said, I'm out of here. And I put a little ad in a yellow page as a criminal defense attorney, 24 hours, six days a week. And then one, I finally got a call. That's crazy. What was your first call? Do you remember your first case? I do. I got a call at about 2 a.m. His name was Stephen Bays. This is the first case I ever got. And it was his wife, Mary Bays, and she said, my husband just got arrested. He's at the 14th District, which is a Californian Hirsch. Would you go out to the police station and represent him? And I said, I'm going to need $500. It was 1995. And she said, if you go to the police station right now, I'm going to give you $500. My wife was like, $500, go. Get out of bed, go. <laughs> so I shot out there. I met Steven. He was in a wheelchair. It was kind of a low-level dope case, nothing, a couple grams. Met, met his wife, Mary. We bonded him out at Californian Hirsch. She gave you the money. She gave me the 500 bucks okay. right there, and I, okay. it was more money than I could ever believe. <laughs> you did go to New Trier, though. I did go to New Trier, but, and I, I but. know. <laughs> I there's a story there. I know that you know that there's a <laughs> lot of drama, and if this, and, I, and I'll talk about it. I don't it. know, but. But, no, but don't. I, I left at 18. I left my home at 18. Okay. And I only went back twice. Okay. True story. True. Mm -hmm. Can we get into that a little bit? Well, okay. Okay. No, 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 it's fine, fine. I wish it was a bottle of booze. <laughs> I can bring some. So, go get, go so, get now. Yeah, you bourbon, <laughs> tequila, <laughs> what, 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 what are you drinking? Bourbon, uh, tequila. Tell me. If you scotch. Got scotch, 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 scotch. Right, scotch. A couple ices, bring me an ice. So Mary Bays gave me $500 and I bonded Stephen Bays out. The idea was to go to preliminary hearing the next morning. I got a call at 7.30 the next morning that Stephen Bays had been executed. First case. And I said, the only question I asked her was, do you want your money back? And she says, no, you can keep my money. And I called my wife and I said, Ruchel, we're in business. I made 500 bucks. I had to go two o'clock in the morning. My client's dead. I don't have to go back to court and try this case. And I'm going to be okay. And you could also represent the uh, person who killed him. That's right. But I mean, <laughs> I, I just saw that there was, a, there was an ability to make, if I worked hard, that I could make money. 
This is like wild. What? People getting like I, I can barely it. I can barely deal with traffic. And he's, he's dealing with like homicides and no, whatever. But defendants getting smoked. All right, just to bring our uh, our, our listeners, uh, okay, bring our listeners back. I'm back. We've begun the scotch. Looking back, right? You spent you know a couple years as a prosecutor. Six six years. Six years. There's been a lot of look back, especially there's been changes to uh, how people view the criminal system in general, the justice system in general, and some of the actions of players back in the day, right? Right. Certainly, <laughs> when it comes to the 60s and 70s, Chicago Police Department has a certain reputation. There's consent decrees, you know, against police departments and against cities. What was your experience as a prosecutor? Were there cases that you look back and say there was some kind of mishandling of evidence or mishandling of the defendants, how we went about getting certain, you know, convictions or whatever? What's your perspective looking back at the time? I dealt with a lot of the detectives that unfortunately have had kind of some issues um, that were kind of like... Uh, Mentored by, you know, John Burge, in which I'm sure you've read about and heard about. But you want, um, why don't you tell the audience, just so they understand what we're t- even talking about, J- perhaps. John Burge was a, was an Area 2 homicide detective. He was a commander, which was at 727 East 111th Street. And there were unfortunate number of cases that ultimately came out where defendants were convicted. It, it was discovered that they had given false confessions based uh, on torture and different types of abuses. And a number of convictions were vacated, and actually, f- certificates of innocence were filed on behalf of those individuals. Did they, did they call at that time the machine in Chicago? That what it was called. Like, what, what, uh, You're looking like, at me. Well, sorry, like when Mayor Daley was president. The machine right? was, just talked about kind of the democratic the party. political, but, but right. it, no, but it was also like where you just gave like someone pulled you over, you gave him like twenty bucks, and that was it. I, I never experienced that. Uh-huh. Typically, when we speak about the machine, we're talking about daily senior daily right. and daily politics in terms of how Bridgeport operates. So, if you force a confession, let's say there was some sort of you know force or you know, but the but the confession was true, but they went about the questioning of that. I mean, they can throw out the case, right? Even though the guy really was guilty, but if they went about in terms of torture or whatever yep. it was, a- a- then, they, then they would throw out the case. Absolutely, just because and John, they, they didn't go by protocol. And John Birch had the famous black box. Where you know they had you know electrodes and there were all kinds of uh, you know allegations of abuse. I never saw any of it, and I was the, I was a little bit of a younger prosecutor, but I was run around the streets at those times when those detectives were around. I never saw anything. I really didn't. And if mm-hmm. I did, I would say I never saw anything. Did you feel was there pressure in the office to get convictions? Right, because obviously when you think about it, the state's attorney, everyone's a politician, right? And they need the numbers have to be good. So if there is a homicide on the street, they want to put someone behind bars, right? They don't want unsolved cases. So was there the pressure in the office to find the guy, charge him, and get a guilty? There was pressure if we knew we had a bad guy and we had evidence to go forward and make sure nothing would happen procedurally or even substantively to kind of uh, find ourselves with a dismissal down the road. But I remember I had a case many years, obviously many years ago. It was one of my first cases on review. There was a young 15-year-old boy who had taken a rake and had anally penetrated and killed the boyfriend of his mother who'd, ab- who'd abused them. I came in, I was a young kid, I was, I was 26, 27, I took a statement, the kid admitted, yeah, this man was abusing my mother, and there was a rake in our house, and I killed him. And I went back to the detectives at, at, at Area 2. I said, guys, we have, we have a great confession. The detective, his name was Mike Baker. He picked me up by my shoulders, he threw me against the wall, and said, get out of here. That kid deserves to have a medal on his chest. So here was a situation where the Chicago Police Department saw a 15-year-old kid who admitted to a murder. I'd gotten the, the confession, which wasn't how anybody could get the confession. He was a sweet young kid who saw abuse. 
And I went to charge, and Chicago said, no, we're not going to. So there was that level of justice as well. So there was some discretion either way. There was always discretion. I always believe and still believe I love detectives, and I go against them all day long, that they're heroes. I love law enforcement. I love it. Are you left with, in any cases, and I'm not talking anything in particular at all, but looking back, because obviously you have six years there, and no one's ever perfect. Is there anything that you look back and say, hmm, what if I didn't get this right? Is there any, I don't know, is there any consciousness there? I'm not, we, we, we could scratch I, that question, but. I, I got it right every time. You always got it right. I think I got it right. You're confident. Right. And I'm not saying, I, did. I, I can't plead the fifth First of all, I believe you did. I'm scared of you, so I'm not going <laughs> to doubt you. Um, but, right. So, I, I never took a confession from a defendant on a murder case or a sex case or anything, any, any case, that I didn't feel comfortable that the statement that was given was consistent with the evidence we had. I really didn't, ever. Mm. Okay, moving on. So now you're you're in criminal defense, right. right? You've had your first case. The person gets executed, right? But yet you're in you know an Armitage in a crack house. Where do you go from there? So it was a very it was a very slow process. I mean, I spent years. We were really really struggling, and I would just slowly build up to representing um, just low level possessors of either heroin. Or when crack came on the scene in the south and west side of Chicago, small amounts of crack. And then I, I started winning cases, and I moved from low-level possessors to maybe higher-level possessors, which ultimately led to distributors, which ultimately led to me meeting people in shallots with khaki pants and blue shirts who were farmers and were from Laredo, Texas, and they were the cartel. And just kind of moved you know, from that way as well. So... I'll say, uh, you know, the audience knows that I'm an attorney as well. When right. I was going to law school, my, uh, my a boring mom, attorney, sort of, sure. a, sort boring. of an attorney. You went, sure. you went to Northwestern, right? <laughs> I did. If, I would, if I would have tripled my LSATs, I would have gone there. <laughs> you know Just what? But John them. Marshall, they're like the hardcore guys who go to state's attorney, then become criminal defense attorneys, and make a ton of money doing that. So, George, okay. would, you work, would you work out of a crack house? <laughs> okay, so so let me just explain. My perspective is that when I went to law school, my mom has two brothers who are both attorneys. And they had told me early on, whatever you do, no criminal defense. Right. And I said, why? And they said, you don't want to end up in the back of a trunk. <laughs> right. So tell us about, you know, your meeting with obviously that maybe the money is good, but was there ever that fear going into that business? Maybe whether it was from your wife or from yourself, feeling like if, you know, if I don't win the case, right, if I mess up, I slip up, I don't get the result I'm looking for, right. there's going to be trouble. Yeah, so as as my as I enjoyed more success, I started moving into bigger federal cases. Um, I started going to San Antonio, started going to Texas a lot, not, not a lot, several times. And I met some folks there, and it's an extremely high-paced, hard-charging practice. And they, ex I mean, the money is money's insane. It's Disneyland money. But they expect you to win. Every client expects you to win. But you're meeting serious people. Real okay, serious but people. what about the danger if you don't win? That never caused you fear. <laughs> Did they, uh, did they any, ever tell you, like, by the way, if you don't win, there's going to be a problem here? Ironically, when I prosecuted the Assyrian kings, they were the uh, they were the Arabs who worked with the Latin kings, and they burnt down the shoals. So when I left the office, they recruited me. So it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's Actually, it, shows, it shows your tattoo. So as disgusting as it sounded, I was representing loads of Palestinian Arabs from the West Bank who had unified with the Latin Kings to sell dope in Chicago. They were extremely aggressive, and I pulled away from them. Did they know you were Jewish? They knew His I was, name is Hal Garfield. They know I was Jewish. Know. I mean, like, no, no, I, 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 
they knew I was Orthodox. Uh-huh. I, that probably was the roughest group of folks I dealt with. But I dealt with, you know, representatives of the Senate. Have you ever You've never been on a school board? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sonola Cartel. Have you yeah. ever heard of the Sonola Cartel? Sure. Those kind of folks. Um, I'm more of a Juarez guy. <laughs> right, right. But um, yeah, uh, at that level, it's it's all dangerous. Are we na- are we naming our favorite gangs? I'm uh, an Arukan gang type of guy. Arukan Jeff Ford, yeah. <laughs> represent those guys. <laughs> there you go. So so okay. So answer is there's no fear. There's always fear, but and they and they try to draw you into into their personal life. As a from Jew, I always had the the uh, excuse I couldn't be. You know, obviously I kept Shabbos and Yotzev, so that was never an issue. I would have to go to a lot of their their functions, but they knew I didn't eat. They knew they could never call me on Shabbos. So there was always that kind of mechitza that they knew that there was, you know, I was that I was a little bit different. At a this, little bit different. At this point, was there ever any kind of like internal uh, struggle in your, you know, between your religious life, right? That you had, you were sending your kids to Jewish schools and they believe certain things and you believe certain things. And then in your professional career, right, you're defending people that sort of have the antithesis of what you've, you're projecting at home. Did that ever, like, was there ever like a, a time where you were just kind of debating if this is really what you want to be doing or if they want, you know, I'm just, just curious a great how, question. how that worked. The only question I debated was if they had MasterCard or Visa. <laughs> I, I didn't care. Uh-huh. Did you take Diners Club? Yeah. Back in the <laughs> day? Okay. Right, yeah. So, so never, it Club, never right. really, you, you always had that separation between your work life and your personal life. Right, but I had absolutely no problems. And matter of fact, I kind of looked forward to representing folks like that. You couldn't wait till father and son learning was over exactly. <laughs> to get back to the cartel. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, we I had actually, our special learning. I had the privilege one time of driving around Alan Dershowitz when he was in Chicago and subsequently in law school reading um, his autobiography. And he has a real philosophy behind the work that he did, which was the person I, might not be a good person, but he, you know, as part of the justice system, part of American democracy, is ensuring that this person has the best defense and has a fair shot and that the system is not being abused. Do you have any such philosophy, or is it really just, you know, cash money? No, I I, I do believe the Sixth Amendment right to uh, a counsel of your choice. Sixth Amendment, you know, guarantees everyone is entitled to have a, an attorney, an attorney that you want, and I, I covet that, that, that amendment. And I think that regardless of whether or not you're innocent or guilty, you know, the government has to establish and prove their case. Because if, if we don't hold them to that standard, and if we don't, have lawyers who really believe in that, then what about the person who really is, who really is guilty, who really is guilty? And the, the argument goes that, hey, he shouldn't have counsel. So you've got to have people. Right. Know. So, I mean, if someone's an awful person, that doesn't really make a difference. They still have their rights. The question is, were there people, let's say, who you knew were guilty? Or told you they were guilty. Right. Or, or just something that you, oh. you, you, you couldn't really, you know, like... All my, all my clients are guilty. They're all guilty. <laughs> Do they tell you that they did this? I never asked. Never it's, irre- asked. it's irrelevant. Uh-huh. It's irrelevant. Unless they're going to involve themselves in a, in, a, in a future crime, I can't have a partnership or involvement in that, and I can't let them give knowing perjury. But uh, the, the question of whether they're innocent or guilty never comes up. It's well, irrelevant. It's also, it is irrelevant because it's not about them being guilty. It's about the government has an obligation to prove that they're no, guilty. Know, and, if they, right. and, and if they can't, and you prove that they can't, then they should not be in jail. That's right. That's right. Okay, so let me ask you this. You've been in some high-profile cases. You've represented some rough people. I have. Some of which, recently there was a case locally about, you want to explain just uh, the pregnant case, the woman on the Craigslist looking for baby clothes where right. you know she met these people and they uh, they brutally murdered her, ripped out the, the infant, and then uh, I believe you were representing uh, Peter, who the cops found cleaning up the crime afterwards. So I represented so, Piotr Bobak, and he was yeah. charged with uh, 
he was charged with obstruction of justice and he was charged with intentional concealment of a homicidal death. That's what he was charged with. His girlfriend, Figueroa, and her daughter were, were charged with murder and aggravated kidnapping. And they actually, they lured the victim in, I think under the auspices of uh, exchanging baby clothes. They were in a Craigslist uh, room for ch- exchanging baby clothes when their intention was to kill her, carve her body out of her stomach, and then hope the baby would live. And the these- baby lived. The baby lived. These people obviously. The baby have, ended up dying though. Baby a couple died. weeks they, later or something, right? Well, these yes. people obviously have money, right? If they're hiring you, so. Or people behind them have money. Uh-huh. Uh, people behind the actually the Bobeks are an extraordinarily extraordinarily wealthy family in Chicago. They got in my name. And so I bring that up to try to understand: Is there a line that you have in terms of none? I have no line. I, love I don't. It. I love it. As to who I will, I mean, there've been a, a couple. A couple rough from cases, religious cases. That was my next question. Nationally, that my wife's like, you are not touching this. And I didn't. I didn't. Okay, so you try to keep it outside, you keep your work outside of the community. But I'm I'm deeply in the community in cases. I've been a couple times where my wife's like, you are not taking this case. And I didn't take it. What about the neo-Nazis? So I've been I, heard, a- I heard your wife uh, had to press you a little bit on that one. Yeah, so I, I've been approached on a couple cases. And that you won't touch or you would touch? I mean, it's a freedom of speech, right, type of thing, but at the same time, it's the type of people you're working with. Is there so... I I was actually retained by uh, a PhD student in California, UC Berkeley, who was responsible for arming the missiles. He did the GPS systems on the Iranian missiles. Clearly, Iranian missiles are are pointing towards Israel. It was a a high-profile case, a federal case. I interviewed six guys. I made it to the final cut. In the end, they didn't hire me. My wife's like, you are not taking this case. I said, Rachel, I'm taking this case. So, but, I, I, so I guess the answer, truthfully, was I probably would have taken it. Yeah. Quick question. So just real quick, going back to the community, right? If you're representing people that have been accused of uh, you know, pretty high-profile, highness types of crimes, and you see them kind of you know, in the community, and a lot of people, most people probably don't know about this. They don't. So does that? how does that work in terms of, number one, thinking they may, may be a danger to people that may be unaware of what they've been accused of or what you're fighting for? That's my first question. And kind of the second part is, are you involved? Like, are there like, I mean, there are a bunch of them that, you know, they probably would come to you over a lot of other people that really have a deep knowledge of what really goes on here. So does that, is that something that you, you talk to them or you're involved with it also? Kind of like a two-part question. So, so the second part is kind of easier. So the Rebuttum do come to me, and I've represented many, many folks in the community who've had both federal and state issues in, in Chicago and outside of Chicago, as well as Rebuttum in other states. Usually, you know, it's clear. However, the funds come to me. My job is to do everything I can to help them. Um, they're entitled to a defense. The Rebuttum are very clear. They understand that. There's issues of Kalashem. So if I can keep either something out of the press or if I can, you know, acquit somebody, that is certainly their, uh, their, their goal. But, of course, the Rebuttum don't their intention isn't to hire me to then create harm in the community by having predators walk free, but I've represented many sex offenders. Right, that's what I'm saying. Is I that, just have. So how does that work, like when you see them walking around and you, you know, in your head you know, like, or at least you've, you're, you have the knowledge that they've been accused of these things. How does that work with like knowing that they're out there? Again, it just kind of defaults back to they're entitled to a defense, and if the government can't prove their case, I, I'm not there to be my client's judge. These are people who are in significant trouble, and they need a lawyer. And it really is, I kind of dumb it down, and I try not to get overly personal in terms of uh, who they are in the community. I really just try to 
look at the facts, look at the case, go to court. And as crazy as this sounds, I forget about these cases. I just forget. There's, but in theory, there's a nice amount of them. Let's say you, uh, let's say there was a case of you defended some sort of you know accused uh, sex offender, and he I got have. off, and, and you kept it out of kept it out of the news, and no one knew about it. Then it's all ha- of a sudden, it happened last week. The, the next week, he also he so he shows up at your show. It's, right, it's, so, it's happened. Right, so it's then, happened. do you in your mind? Like, I mean, do you just watch your kids? Do you tell the rabbi? I mean, obviously, you know, you have certain laws and well, confidentiality, right. or you really can't. I mean, right. I, I don't, right? I mean, yeah, no, I don't share the information. Right. It, it right. is sometimes it's challenging, but I'll you say, know that this guy potentially is a risk to the kids or whoever. Like, how does that not potentially? He actually is right. a risk, right? Um, that's not my job, and I have to really separate communal interests mm-hmm. and personal interests. With professional interests, were there times when you had clients, not even in terms of the community in this case, but when you go to the authorities because you know your client is a threat to somebody or someone's life? Or I mean, aren't there certain laws where there's an obligation for you? I don't know. In terms there's of an obligation reporting? not to. If I, well, I would lose my law license, right? If I, I was, aren't there from, certain times? Guess if there are like a, if it's like a risk to someone's life or something that or no. If it's a client of mine, it is the only time I have an affirmative duty to go to law enforcement is I know that he's shared information with me about a future crime. Any crimes that he tells me that right, he's committed. Like a future crime. That, have yes. you had that situation? Never. Never. Okay. They aren't going to tell me that. Right. But it's a great question. Okay. I've never had that. Part of the profession that you're involved in is is this, there's a certain amount of compartmentalizing, right? There has to be an emotional detachment from what you're seeing on a daily basis. And then you kind of can't bring that home. Do you find yourself, when it comes to your personal life, finding yourself somewhat emotionally detached from things that you feel like, I don't know, is it, you know, you know what I mean? It does, is that ever complicate your personal life because you have to remove emotions from a lot of your life? I, I think what it's done is because these cases are so serious and I take them so personal that unfortunately, and my kids will say it, I'm not always present. I mean, I'm always thinking about my cases. I mean, I've got cases all over the country, serious cases. And it's hard to to be on trial or interviewing witnesses or going to the morgue. And then you have to come home and smile and kiss your kids and talk. And they want to share their day with you. My mind's 6,000 miles away. And that's bad. And so it, that that's probably the difficult thing because I, I do I care very much about my clients. Do you find yourself more maybe overprotective more than normal when it comes to your kids, let's say, out in the community because you know – What's actually out there? It's a great question. Yes, I, I've totally gone overboard. I'm a pretty strict parent. Yeah, because I do know what's out there. I do, and I know what's here. What's out there and what's here right. in the community? It's all over. Talk to me about David Goggins. David Goggins. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Who's David Goggins? Who's David, David Goggins? Goggins. I'll, let I'll, I'll, I'll explain. I'm obsessed with Navy SEALs. I have just read every book and have just. David Goggins is a former Navy SEAL who was an ultra athlete. He's gone on to become a motivational speaker, and he he just has an outlook and way of life that is just pushing, becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I've tried to kind of mimic that in terms of when I run I used to run marathons, and I get up really early to learn. I, mean, I, get, I get up crazy hours. I'm up very early, and I stay up late. And he talks about this idea that you could push yourself beyond what you thought you could do, and he has something called the 40% rule. When you think you're totally done for the day, only 40% of your tank is done. And it's true. It's really true. Uh, and Goggins is a huge... I'm going on two and a half hours of sleep. Are you impressed? <laughs> <laughs> you're about to fall asleep now. What do you think caused this obsession with Navy SEALs and, and trying to be like a Navy SEAL, right? 
Well, let me Let's just go back to his youth. I'll give you an example. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Yeah. Ever take, uh, you know, ice cold showers for no reason? I do it every morning. <laughs> I do it every morning. So tell us, wh- where does this come from, do you think? Ice cold showers is a tremendous way to start your day and expose yourself to an incredible amount of pain. And what time is this at, usually? Uh, 5.15. So ice cold means just the cold water, no hot water at all? No. And I do it for four minutes a day. Every day? Every day. Wow. Every day. And it's brutal. But what it ends up doing is it it triggers a a huge amount of endorphins, and it actually triggers epinephrine in your body, a hormone. And it just starts your day, and it's great. (laughs) And if you can withstand that, do anything. Can I, can I give you a challenge? Please. Maybe we'll videotape this. Would you consider coming with us to Lake Michigan? We're going to handcuff you. You're going to lie down on the <laughs> beach. We're going to let the let the tide come up yes. over you, right? Yes. That's what they do in... Well, the uh, polar. What's it called? The polar, no, polar, polar, polar plunge. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what well, you say with the Navy SEALs, you mean? Yeah. They do would them, you do but, it? I would do that. Okay. But you all, but you all run the Instagram are, account. You guys are all coming with me. No, yes. I mean, I well, hired the company that runs our Instagram <laughs> Yes, that's right. Okay. Are you open to being waterboarded? <laughs> I love. I've done. I've done waterboarding. So I. No, I'm not. Oh, okay. No. No. God forbid. Hell, getting back a little bit to more the personal versus the professional life. You are a founding member of Shari Tzedek. I was. You left a couple of years ago, spending a lot more time at Yushurin. Talk to us about that. Well, actually, I spent a couple of years at Yushurin, and then when the Hatzalah Minion opened up, I kind of joined the Hatzalah Minion. I think it was just kind of, kind of time to, I kind of had grown away from, and they're a wonderful group of folks, wonderful group of folks. It's just too long. I too long, it. and I it's just, you. It's a, I you know, I just am not your typical Balchuga like, like guy. Like saying every word, yeah. You know, and it's just, it was just time to grow, we kind of moved on, uh-huh. but I love, I go there occasionally, and I love the people there. I still have a lot of friends there. How'd you end up in becoming a, well, is that the question? Well, he's he wants to be Navy SEAL. Obviously, he's oh. going to do it solo. Like, I tried to interrupt you and get the it's question. Not even like I don't know. I could, <laughs> but how, I, I would want to ask: How would you wind up becoming a Balchuva, finding more sure. religion? Growing up in in Wilmad, was there a tradition at all? Can I have some scotch? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, scotch. Sure. Yeah. So, were I, you a Beth Hillel guy? I was an Amish guy. Okay. And actually, William Frank, Robert Frankel was was Muslim from Avaron. So he, although he was. Uh, at a conservative movement, he his roots were in Orthodox Judaism. Brother, that's a pretty full glass you poured him. No, J- that Josh poured him. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is that, is um, that sarcastic or no? No, I'm serious. Oh. It's probably around a, a four shots worth. <laughs> if you've met it, Hal, he'll be it, fine. It, it's, it's, a, it's a long evening. <laughs> he'll be yeah. just fine. <laughs> no, so I, he's got 40% like cold shower. <laughs> yeah, it's like a cold shower. <laughs> yeah, no, so I went to University of Kansas out of high school. Jayhawk. I was a Jayhawk, right? Before Danny Manning. Shout out to... I went to school with Manning. Oh, did you? Yeah, and I was out of class. Shout out to Elise, Elise, Gla- Elise Glatz, also a... Uh, did you know Elise? Uh, she's quite a few years younger. <laughs> okay. She got to be at least 19 but years But Danny younger. was class of 88, so you graduated yeah. college when? So I graduated college at 85, but I finished in Israel. Okay. So I actually left my house at 18, and I went to Kansas, and I became a uh, Kansas resident, and I stayed there, and I didn't come back. <laughs> so you but went to college and never came back? I had a crazy family. Uh-huh. It was uh, it was a pretty intense family. It was kind of uh, imagine Freud's waiting room. So that was kind of sit, now that we see you, I find that hard to believe. So. No, trust me, trust me. Yeah, so no, I, I decided I thought it was better that I just kind of leave. Kansas was very. I came from New Trier, so it, it was a very good school, and it didn't require huge credits to, uh, or credentials to get into Kansas. A six pack of beer was a buck eighty one. Schaefer beer. <laughs> GSL money in those days, before you guys were born, they were throwing money. So you, if you became a, not a manservant, but if you became a resident of the state, you could get a ton of money. So I went to Kansas, loved it, and then I, I screwed up. I didn't really work my money well, so I didn't have money for my senior year. And so I was going to just drop out and just kind of figure things out. A girl I was dating at the time was going to Israel. She was a real political activist. 
And she said, you should come with me to Hebrew University. I'd never heard of, I mean, I've heard of Israel, but I wasn't in any way affiliated. And at this point, you were not affiliated, like you didn't... I mean, I grew up in a, in a Jewish home, but I, I, I had... Did you have like Friday night meals growing up? Never, never. So never. You, were, you weren't involved like in the Hillel or anything like that? No. High holidays? No. Were you no. a high holiday person? Yeah, okay. high holiday, but... Uh, CBT, Sammy's, which one? I was a Delta Chi. I was okay. the only Jewish kid in my house. Got it. But I dated a Jewish girl. And you ate it at DeBevix. <laughs> yeah, DeBevix. Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> um, and she's like, yeah, I'm going to Israel. And we were serious. I said, I don't have the money to go. And she said, just reach out to these folks at Hebrew University, Rothberg Overseas School. And I was able to get money. So I did my senior in Israel. And then my whole world changed. Every minute, everything changed. So I did my senior year there. I was able to graduate. Yeah. So I graduated. It, so how did, it, how did everything change? Yeah. Like were mean, you, you got religious right away, or no? So I went to Hebrew U for my senior year. Now I was planning on going to graduate school, which I did do before law school. I did a, a year in a doctorate program, but when I was at Hebrew U, all of a sudden, you know, Eshetorin or Sameach, and, and actually a yeshiva called Mechon Meir, they all would come to Hebrew U and just try to you know reach out to guys. And I got actually very attracted to Mechon Meir, so I became just an avid reader. I read everything from it. It all started, of course, with Exodus and the Chosen and the Let Up, and then ultimately led me to yeshiva. So I finished my senior year there. I went back to Kansas and started a PhD program. But all that was on my mind was Israel. So I did about nine months of that program. Went back to Israel and got hooked up in a lab at Hebrew University. I was studying behavioral science. KU in a PhD program. F found a lab at Hebrew that was doing the research that I was really interested in. When you went back to KU to, for the PhD program, were you, were you religious at that time? No, but I was no. upset. I was, I was obsessed. Okay. And I was learning to teach myself Hebrew. And I was just... So you're interested in Judaism oh, at that point? At that point, I was done. By 21, I was slowly getting into Parsha. So I go back to Kansas, and I start this PhD program, and I started asking lots of questions after the year that I was in Israel. And I met a professor at the School of Religion at, at KU. He's like, you know, Garfinkel, you're asking me all kinds of questions that I can't answer. But there's a guy who is a professor from MIT who's a little quirky, but he wears tzitzis and wears a yarmulke, and I think you should ask him all your questions. So I met him. His name was Joe Mendelson. And Mendelssohn spent every Shabbos at Rabbi Kleiman's yeshiva in St. Louis. And I started going with this professor every Shabbos when I was in graduate school just to be in the yeshiva. Well, it didn't take long until I dropped out of my graduate program, and I just went back to Israel. Just figured, got enough money for a plane ticket, got back, and I was working at a restaurant called Chili's, waiting tables, <laughs> living with buddies of mine that I'd met in Mali Adumim, just soaking up Israel. You were, you were learning at that point full-time? I couldn't learn full-time, but I was learning partial partial time, and I was a waiter, and I was just hanging out in Israel, just absorbing the whole thing. <laughs> so why'd you leave? I ran out of money. And you I was always in... seem to be changing jobs or something when you're <laughs> right, running out right. of money. No, right. <laughs> yeah. So then I'm... Left well, school, I was, left his job. I did. Yeah. So I was in Tel Aviv one day. It's going to sound crazy. It's, so It sounds so disorganized. Uh, have another look. Yeah, right. And then you'll tell us it won't sound crazy. And they had um they had an ad for the LSAT. You could it was open admission to take the LSAT at Tel Aviv University. So I was at Yeshiva part time. I was at Ashatoro, just in and out. But I was kind of like a gypsy. I was going. I'd go to Orsamek. I'd go to Mechon Meir because they spoke Hebrew there. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I was now a, uh, a PhD grad student, drop out of a year, and I was kind of a lab geek. I was kind of really homeless, not homeless, but just kind of walking around. I really did, I did not know what I was going to do, and it was a bit of a scary situation. So I thought, I'll take the LSAT. I took the LSAT. and Without I, studying for it? It was, it, was, it was crazy. That's why I didn't get to a good school. I mean, I, whatever, Marshall was a great school, but I, I, mean, I think I had it pre properly prepared. I took an open admission, and I just went into Tel Aviv, and I took it cold. 
and I was able to get into the night program at Marshall. The night program at Marshall is where all the cops and steel workers and all the prosecutors taught because those guys needed extra money, and that's how I got into criminal law. Did you have like a close group of friends when you were in Israel, or you were just floating around and you just know a million people? But. Great group of friends. Anyone, anyone you still talk to? Yeah, actually, a guy called me today, a guy, Doug Miller, who actually is the FBI agent who wrote the memo about the 19 hijackers. Look up Doug Miller. Doug Miller is the FBI agent who wrote the two from memo when he was a little FBI agent in, he was in Minnesota, analyzing the 19 hijackers in Florida. Miller and I were on the same program. He just called me tonight. So there's like, it was a cover of guys who were whatever, just guys who were just kind of like, you know, figuring things out. So we all went to Hebrew together and I still see them all today. Smart guys, guys in Wharton, guys doing different things. You settled down only after law school and you started working as a lawyer? I mean, obviously, no, you, so you, I, obviously, so you, I never, didn't. obviously you never settled down. I mean, no, like, so, you, so I was yeah. in the office for a year right? and I dropped out of the office, the job I wanted for my life, and I went to Orsonman for a year and a half <laughs> to sit and learn full time. Right. So let me ask you. So, Full time. So you mentioned you had left home at 18. Now looking back, you become a Kansas resident, right. and you're you're taking the LSAT in Tel Aviv Open Admissions. Now, you got into Marshall Night School, but for one reason, probation, or, probation only, probation only. But for for one reason or another, was was there doubt that you had coming back to Chicago? I mean, you made a conscious decision to leave Chicago. Right. Then whether you know it was your family situation, what was that like? That decision to come back to Chicago. Why question. not go elsewhere? It's a good question. Wow. I'm going to take a guess because um, you were familiar with Chicago. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my only place I had really lived was Chicago, Kansas, Israel, and I had just dropped out of my graduate program. And my professor, it was a very challenging program to get into. I was young, but they only take eight kids, eight, 10 kids a year in these PhD programs. It really kind of, it wasn't for me. I, I just was, wasn't there. Maybe there's some hurt, bad feelings at KU mm -hmm. in that graduate program. So I wasn't going to stay there. Came back to Chicago, that was dicey, but at least I had my high school friends and I had people who I could count on who would take care of me and I could take care of them and it was fine and it worked out. Can you talk about what made it dicey a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I, I come back and uh, I haven't seen my parents in three and a half years and I'm back in Chicago. A lot of family dynamics had occurred. The siblings all kind of went their own way. So parents are there. But how, it's, how many siblings? There's four of us. Okay. But, but, but there's a sister who left also at 18, okay. and I, I never saw her again. I mean, it's crazy. No, so there was that. So you're coming kind of back to the eye of the tiger, so to speak. But um, you got to face your demons, and this was my mm -hmm. life in Chicago is where my high school friends were. And were you in West Rogers Park at the time? Is that where you moved to? Or no? no. Okay. So I asked a couple of my high school buddies who came from very stable families, they were working in Lincoln Park, if I could live with them. And I would live with them for a couple weeks at a time. And I had buddies from Israel who were at Hyde Park. So I would go from Lincoln Park to Hyde Park. And I would live three, four months at a place. Um, and I worked in just, it's different. So you were kind of, kind of like couch surfing, basically? I was what? Like like going from like couch to couch in different houses I like went, at that point. I did a lot of couches. I did a lot of couches. And it was really challenging doing law school like that. Right. Because I'm working there today, going at night. And it's just trying to figure out where am I going to live. But it was, worked out. And, 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 and it might sound a little bit more um, grim, but it was okay. Seriously. Was it's there, okay. Did you ever have hope at that time coming back to Chicago, like maybe somehow this family situation could be okay? Or did you move back knowing, I need to stay away from this situation? I need to stay away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and my siblings made the same decision. We all did it. And you've all continued to stay away throughout this period? Yeah. Yeah. We have. Have, you, have the siblings at all reconnected? or? Yes. Yeah, no, okay. so I've, I've got a sister who's from. 
She lives on my block, Josh. She and I are very, very close. Uh But it made us all very strong. It made us all extraordinarily independent. Clearly, yeah. And at what point did you meet your wife? Is she from Chicago? So my wife's from Brooklyn. Really? When I left the state's attorney's office to go learn, I met a guy there who became a very good friend. And he kept mentioning this girl, Ruckel Blitzstein from Brooklyn. And we met. Related to Morden Blitzstein? No. No. You're familiar with that, right? With who? Morden Blitzstein? Like Blitzstein Institute? Oh, right. No. I am familiar with that, of course. (laughs) That would have been nice. But that would have taken care of the $500 first thing, you know. Where where are you going, y'all? It's too intense. It's getting too too, 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 too real for him. It's too real for him. Can't handle this. We'll hang out later. Take a cold shower. <laughs> okay, so you meet you. You had a friend who suggested that you go out with this right. girl. Was it love at first sight type of thing? We met on a Monday. We were engaged Thursday. That same week. Yeah, yeah. And her parents were cool with that. Uh, yeah, they were cool <laughs> with it. They were cool with it. I mean, I was, I was twenty nine or thirty. She was twenty six, basic aqua girl. But we had we had spoken on the phone for three or four weeks before, uh-huh. and I was just man, I was just crazy about immediately. It. I just. Let me ask you a question. How long, Josh, after you met your wife, did you know she was for you? Two dates? More three than, dates? More than three days. I mean, really? <laughs> probably not that much more. Probably took a long time for you to get comfortable yeah, with the well, decision. There, there was actually an issue. Uh, <laughs> we won't get the week, that right No, now. the week of the marriage <laughs> with an AC unit. <laughs> for, for, is that for, accurate, Josh? For another is, episode, for another maybe time. we'll have your for, wife. For, she, for, I don't know if she confided in that. Me, I don't know if that's secret, but she'll never talk there were some hesitations her. because <laughs> right, of an right. AC issue and Josh's yeah, neuroses. Yeah. yeah. But I would reckon that you probably knew very soon that yeah. your wife was for you. Yeah. It was just a question of getting comfortable with the decision right. that you'd made a long time ago. Right. That could be. Is that possible? That, yeah, it is. Hell, I get the sense that, thing, that there's a lot of intensity, right? There's Navy <laughs> SEAL drive, right? There's the drive. Like, there's no no holds bar when it comes to who the defendant well, is. R- rumor also like that. is that. And then, engage, you know, the, uh, the quick engagement your wife's always been on board with that Everything. that level. Well, the rumor also is that Hal is leading in Hatsala calls. Is that? <laughs> I'm not. I'm like the, no? I'm like the biggest bum in Hatsala. <laughs> Why they've kept me on? No, and there's there's a huge quota. No, actually, I need to give a shout out to uh, P61 Moishi Blonder. Told me to give <laughs> he gives regards to all you and my boy uh, L55 Ezzy Wolf. So love those guys. Two great, great, great men. Great the men. best. The best. The best. Uh, so and, yeah, and so, you should know your brother-in-law. And his father have been eating by me forever. That's Nach- right, Nachman Marshall. Great, I mean, you know, great people, the best. A little bird told me that you might you might be into the Hatsala and take Hatsala calls to kind of sometimes avoid company at your meals on Shabbos. <laughs> a little excuse to run out, even if if the call is coming from Schomburg, you, you're running out of the house. Oh, for sure, I'm Jordan the first guy. On. I'm the first guy. Yeah, sometimes always can... out on the prowl. But you know, we should mention that your involvement with Hatsala, you're an active participant. I, and, uh, I love it. A hero of the community. Um, about that, I just you know I love Hatsala. And what is it, it's the same intense drive, right? Do you take you, vacations? You, Do you ever slow Jordan, down? Jordan, aren't you intense? You strike me in as an intense ways, guy. In some ways, you're a Northwestern grad. You're running this podcast. You know, you've done your research on me a little bit. Yeah, but Josh could tell you there's a there's a there's, you know there's, vacation there's, there's, JB, there's a, right? vacation JB comes out and he just yeah you know, I, likes could, to relax. I could sit around yeah, we, also yeah no we vacation we're actually going to Montana this summer our family oh, nice. so yeah we go away yeah, yeah, we, we always to, travel to hunt bison what are you doing there <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna go to um, uh, Glacier Park very nice Beautiful. yeah have any of your kids kind of taken on your intense Mindset, maybe not in criminal law. Oh, and by the way, general. we don't mean this intense. No, 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 it's not negative this at all. Positive, no, very right? positive. I don't very know if it's positive. positive. It's just who I am. Yeah, I mean, you know? I, 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 absolutely. I mean, it like, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an inspiring kind of way. I, I think my kids are all intense. They're all intense. 
Yeah, they're all, they're all highly driven. But then your, your daughter married a DJ. <laughs> she married a DJ. I knew that line was coming up. <laughs> and Ariel's, Ariel's intense. And Shoshana is an anchor to that intensity. But she started her own business. Right. She's an interior designer. And right. she's amazing. Awesome. She's a great, great mother. Yeah. The yeah, entrance we, we, to my we house should, is we, we, we more should. beautiful as a result of her work. What's actually. the company name? We'll plug it on the pod. Sage, Sage Interiors. Sage Interiors. Okay, we'll get her on. Did you feel, though, when your daughter was marrying this... At times, vagabond of a DJ. <laughs> it was a was step, there, was was a step there, down. Was there some hesitation there? Doubts? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He, Ariel Kudnicki, is the most motivated, most. I, I don't know if I've met anybody who has a harder or more consistent work ethic. He works like a dog. He's humble. He's sweet. I couldn't ask for anything more. He's great. He's great. He's great. He is a great man. I actually did text him last week, like, why haven't I seen you? He, he well, goes into his intense zone, working right. hard. He does, and I enjoy his company. He and, works you know, good so for him. hard. I'm happy for him. Yeah, you get along with him. Love him. Love okay, him. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so what else? So, so, you know, is there downtime? Does you said your mind is elsewhere? You're thinking about your cases, right? How, how, do, you, how do you cases? how do you relax? How do I relax? Even by the and by the way, we should know. Besides, when you're not in your cases, you know, you you are a solid from guy, a staple of the base measures. You're Every sure day, and, no. you are sometimes found you sure and arguing, <laughs> yelling. I, 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 we, we we actually have louder than the courtroom. We had a yeah. chat to discuss you, and I said, Look, I've I've seen him in your in very early in the morning. It's and crazy. You will know if he's there because yeah. you'll hear him down the yeah. hall. I mean, I, I kind of feel if if you're gonna live life, aren't you I, I my sense is though I don't know you guys that you live the same kind of life. Don't you just grab life? Ice cold showers. No, I'm, don't you <laughs> yeah, just grab it? Life's it's, amazing. It's, it's a way to be. Life is amazing. Life's beautiful. You, you gotta I, appreciate every moment. But is there any is there any time that do you, do you decide to do anything in order to take that edge off? In order, I don't you know whether it's um, substance abuse or you know so, something more. Well, I'm drinking now. Yeah, you are drinking, but something in order to kind of calm that edge because you know let's say you're coming back from a big case, you get a big. Uh, conviction overturned or something for your client you need to enjoy yourself what do you do to lower the volume alcohol yeah no i mean i really am not i i need to do more kind of i guess i guess you guys call it self-care um but i mean you jordan know, calls it self-care you know <laughs> not really I that's mean, in these days by the way the self-care stuff what's that that's in these days. That's true. It's My wife says yoga. Maybe you should. So you're just you know, like core power from one case to another. You're just you're ready for the next challenge. Yeah, I mean I've got a lot of a lot of work. You know, thank God. I mean, you know, with Chicago is I'm sure you guys know from reading. It's a busy city, and there's a lot of work. And and, and it's and I kind of have a little bit, a little bit more of a national practice now. Do you say? Do you ever want to get to a point where like you're kind of like just quarterbacking cases and not necessarily in the trenches and everyone? I've tried that. And I, I've tried to hire people, and I've actually. I've I've actually tried to hire some kids from bigger schools, from very prestigious schools, and I just it takes a lot of work to try to mold a trial lawyer. And trial practice is interesting. It's just um, and especially criminal trial practice, a lot of it's instinct, just the way a D agent pauses, the way an FBI agent looks at you, and a report can say X, but he's on the stand, he's saying Y. And I've tried to teach that to younger lawyers from real, actually some from some big schools. And I, it just hasn't gone over well, and I find myself working harder. I don't mind giving up a slice of the pie, but uh, if I end up having to do double the work to teach a kid how to do a cross-examination, I don't know. I think you have it or you don't have it to be a trial lawyer. You haven't found anyone that has it yet that's been working for Did, you? That, that's worked for me. Okay. Yeah. But I'm, they're all out. Trust me. They're all out there. I just haven't found the, the, the associate yet that I can really kind of mold to, to my vision of how you look at evidence and how you look at trial work and how you communicate to juries and just 
I haven't found that person yet. Can I, but po- there- can I posit a different answer on behalf sure, of hell? Sure, sure. I feel like for you, you get such great pleasure. You enjoy the intensity of working on the it. trial. Why give it up? I love right? it. Why, why give it to someone else to do in quarterback? Well, I think at some point. It's, there's, obviously, there's a financial yeah. aspect to having three guys working under you, but hell gets enjoyment from working these cases and getting his his you know right. his right. feet wet. Right, it's true. I mean, I'll, I know it sounds crazy, but I'll review a twenty-page grand jury transcript a hundred times. A hundred. I'm, I'm not a smart guy. I, I'm far from that. <laughs> but it, it, but you don't even need to be smart to be successful. You just have to work hard. Yeah, and I just haven't found that lawyer yet who just is willing who to invest that much in a twenty-page grand jury transcript. Uh-huh. I haven't met that guy. So yet. you're little. You're really like living the case when you do when you're in trial. Who else is? No, no, I'm just, it's, yeah, it's, uh, and I do. do you recall your most thrilling victories? Maybe ones that you didn't expect to win and that you. Sure. What was a great victory? Yeah. So I, I actually recently represented Sean McCarthy. Sean McCarthy was charged with uh, a production of child pornography in federal court. That's the R. Kelly count. Not possessing child pornography, not distributing it, but producing it. He produced it. And like I was filmed it. it? He filmed it. Uh-huh. He, he filmed himself doing horrible things to children. Uh-huh. The case was in front of Judge Shaw in federal court. Believe it or not, I was able to get the case dismissed based on just a recent ruling that had come out from the Seventh Circuit that was just so on point. And to win a case like that where the offer, the offer was 40 years, to plead McCarthy was 40 years. That was the plea agreement. And to have the case dismissed, federal government was mesmerized. You advised him not to take that plea? No, we, we, we were going to take the plea. Uh-huh. Um, and then all of a sudden, this case came out of Seventh Circuit, and I was just, oh my God, this case is just on, is just on fours with the facts of our case. You want to explain just what what the precedent was? That it's a little too the, technical. It, it's it's pretty graphic, but just if if without a, without giving the example, right? So what, it, so if you are, child pornography is is defined by many many different acts. It involves touching a minor, but it also involves touching yourself. So if you touch yourself in front of a minor, that and you produce it, that's child pornography. But the way that McCarthy touched himself, the Seventh Circuit had recently come out and said, that isn't pornography. That's just kind of distilling it down. And when, when that case came out and the conduct that was alleged that McCarthy had done, which was, it was horrific conduct. I mean, it was, it was horrific. But the U.S. versus Howard was just on point. And when I presented this case to the government and, and they were like, we have to throw it out. And they were just furious because McCarthy's a monster and now he's walking the streets. <laughs> so so that was an unbelievable, I, I don't, I don't want to sound haughty. I don't know if there's another lawyer in Chicago who's ever won the R. Kelly production count other than me. If there is, I don't- Email I, us I, at J3Amitron. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, no, no, I, I don't think a, another lawyer's had that result on a production case. On a, hit, on a possession or distribution, not on a production. I think I'm the only guy. Do you find even in the joy of victory, there's some like tinge deep down there of, you know, some I, hesitation I, 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 I or sadness? I mean, I'm just thinking about like the perspective of the audience listening. Is there some tinge of sadness being like, I did my job. I succeeded in what my job is, but there's this guy out there and he shouldn't be out in the streets. Is there any of that? None. None. I'm not gonna lie to you. Yeah. There's no. none of it. I, I, I appreciate the honesty. None of it. Yeah. I mean, your job is maybe that's your, maybe I'm screwed up. No, no, no. I mean, I just, yeah. I just, I love the law, and the law says this. It, it ends there. 
Yeah. I never think about it. You don't, you don't let emotions get involved. Never, in your, right. Never, right. You can't. It's not about emotions. He can't. No, I know. I know. He wouldn't be able to do his He's job. He's still human, but I know. I, I get it. It's not about emotions. Right. Hell, right. are there any cases you look back to where you kick yourself that you didn't get the decision that you wanted? I just had a really, really emotional case. I was trying a case in um, Davenport, Iowa, before Judge Darrow. She's the chief judge of uh, Iowa. It was Monica Wright, U.S. versus Monica Wright. It just, I just tried it. It was alleged in the indictment that she was um, distributing methamphetamine between Colorado, St. Louis, and Iowa, and Illinois, Rock Island. And I was able to negotiate a phenomenal plea agreement, phenomenal plea agreement, that she would only serve 10 years. She would serve 85% of that. She'd be out in eight and a half years. She has a couple kids, one of which is, uh, is a special needs kid. She said, I want to go to trial. Heard about you, read about you. <laughs> I said, Monica, I don't think I don't know if I can win this. And the evidence wasn't great. They didn't have wiretaps, what we call Title III evidence. She didn't give a statement. When DEA or the U.S. Marshals executed a warrant, they didn't recover any drugs from her house. I should have won the case. And the jury was out. It was a tough jury. It was a very rough jury in Davenport. And Judge Adira was really rough on me. It was a very emotional trial. Just finished a year ago, July. I think a better lawyer would have won that case. How many years did you get? She got 24. Uh-huh. But she wanted to go to trial, and I, I pled with her, don't go to trial. And not, not that this matters, no excuses. The Central District of Illinois has never lost a drug conspiracy case. They've never lost a federal, and I begged her, don't go to trial. But I think a better lawyer, a smarter lawyer could have won the case. And it just, it haunts me. It haunts me all the time. What are the differences that you see jurisdiction to the jurisdiction? You know, I'm, I'm sure Great you question. have experience in a lot of different yeah. places now, and you're more aware in Texas and Western Texas. Yeah. It's this way. In yeah. Northern Illinois, it's this way. I do a lot of work uh, in the Eastern Division of Indiana. It's an extraordinarily, extraordinarily conservative town. I do a lot of complicated white-collar federal work there. And the judge there is very respected. He's a smart judge. Prosecutors are all Ivy League guys. Indiana's really rough. I go to McLean County, Illinois. I could move to McLean County, Illinois, Bloomington, Illinois. I have a huge, I, I could do my entire practice there. I do really well there. I do well in Chicago. I do well at 26th Street. I've won some big cases there. Cases that, you know, I'm not sure everybody would win. I'm in Wisconsin. I've got some big cases in Wisconsin. Texas is rough. New York's rough. You're all over the country. I just picked up a case. I'm in North Dakota. I'm in Bismarck now. It's rough there. I'm getting Is that why out. you're going to Big Sky this, uh, this summer? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Close by. Yeah, have your nope. family meet you out there? Right, right. Nah, these I go to these smaller places just because I'm I don't know people hear about me, so I'm traveling now. And are you try, are you constantly trying to change a venue based on your experience? You where can't you can change. Win you can't change in these venue. types of cases. You can't change venue, especially in federal court. Right, it's impossible to change venue. Okay, so Hal, where where do you see your career taking you? Obviously, you're still uh, very active, taking tons of cases. Right. You know, do you have milestones that you want to meet? Do you have goals? So I was approached actually by the, the appellate court to become a judge, and I said no to it, which is kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, I'm 60, you know, I'm, it's, things are getting harder to, you know, to run around as much as I run around. So it'd be a great way to kind of, uh, kind of end my practice, but I said no to it. So I guess the bench is out. Did your family want you to take it? My wife wants to go to France, so <laughs> I guess the bench was out. Still think I'm relevant enough to make a difference. I'm still getting enough calls that, you know, it's still exciting. So, I mean, truthfully, it's kind of hard to get kid on the bench. I was offered the bench. I said no to the bench. Maybe teaching, you know, I'd like to teach, but I'd, I kind of want to teach at a different level. I'm not sure with my... Marshall, why don't you go back to Marshall? Right. So I, I think 
I think with my, unfortunately, my, educa- my educational pedigree is going to keep me from going to a, like, I, don't, I think I'd like to teach maybe, um, I don't know, maybe a different school. Ari Crown. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd like to teach law school. I'm not sure I, I have the, the Would you ever consider going, you know, some guys go in-house. Would you ever consider becoming no. like the consigliere to uh, the Gambino family or something like that? No, so I, I, I've interviewed, I've interviewed the mob a little bit and they're, um, they're, they, they, they pay horribly and they're very, why is that? I don't know. I don't know. But I finally started making trips down to Taylor street. That's where, you know, it is at Taylor in Western. And I went and met some of the guys there, some of the wise guys, some of the gangsters there. Should be mentioned by the way that <laughs> we don't... have to bring up, I'm sorry, Hal, but on a personal note, um, we do have to bring up eventually and get into my, uh. Yes. Family yes. stuff. Yes. Yes. My well, dad's adopted, and yes. well, we'll I've got that. I've got Taylor Street uh, roots. So um, your dad's adopted. So you comfort you family in Taylor. There's Street? a lot going in. Literally, down literally with my family. On. We're gonna. I think we're gonna have to. And people are yeah. begging for my dad to come on. There's been some reunions with uh, biological family, and the Italian side is you know runs deep. And really, that's amazing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So tell us about Taylor Street. Yeah. So I've gone down there a little bit, and I and I've met with some of the guys here. I, I, I've been flattered. They've quartered me a little bit. Well, the mob's kind of like the edge has been taken off a little bit. The the feds have got into them. Rico, you know, it's the true. good days are over. What are they? There's only a couple of unions that they still have, right? Right. So, what uh, are they running these days? A lot of gambling. Gambling um, still. There's, you know, they're into prostitution. They're into um, construction still. They're doing some waste management stuff and that and that stuff. And and I met with them. And I sat down with them, and I didn't get a sense that the kind of commitment they wanted from me and the money was in alignment. So I was flattered for the introduction. I'm not sure chemistry we met. I, I, I don't think we fit well. I fit more kind of with um, Maldovians. I'm, I'm representing some gangsters now, and they're an interesting crew. They're a real hard, hard-charging group of guys, Maldovia, you know, former yeah. Yugoslavia. I can imagine, I guess. Yeah, so I just met them in the last couple of years, and, and I find them intriguing. They're doing good work. <laughs> they're, they're helping the city. Uh, this has been uh, a very unique, <laughs> a unique episode for us here on J Three Podcast. I'm sorry, guys. No, uh, no, it's, it's fantastic. It's amazing. I, I don't it's know. Fantastic. The content, Cal, I apologize. It's it wasn't fascinating. It's fantastic. It's fascinating. It's real. It's raw. It's it's just you know. I think a lot of people. I was going to lie to you. I was no, no, no. Tell you who I, I, am. I think a lot of people don't realize you know kind of what you do and and the stuff you're involved with and. The knowledge, and I mean, it's just it's fascinating to hear. So I think a lot of people yeah. don't get. A Do you have protection or, around the city? No. Like okay, but let's say you know sometimes so, you so, have someone like tags graffiti on a shoulder or something, and there's some big uproar, and pe- it's in the press and all this stuff, and the mayor comes out. Are you just play, you, I'm sure you could just make a phone call and be like, "Who did this?" Or take <laughs> so, care, take care of them. So, you know, so like this, so. State attorneys have a unit that if when you were a prosecutor. You worked on certain cases, and then they get out and they make threats. So there were a couple of cases um, that we discussed kind of offline that people made some threats to me. So then I've, the Chicago Police Department's been amazing. They call me. They've said that if you need a car by your house, we'll get your car by your house. But thankfully, nothing kind of ever escalated. Again, I've been out of the office for 29 years. I wasn't in very long to really make a real you know, um, fingerprint. But there were a couple of cases I had that there, there are people who that kind of, you know, have made some threats. And and then Cook County State Attorney's Office is amazing. CPD is amazing to protect to protect former prosecutors. Well, I'm not talking about protection for you. I'm it's talking th- about going on the offensive. You have the connect to <laughs> have what you, you know what I mean? If you, like, why, if you, you if, sure, if, and if don't you we did, have, why you, don't and you sure, don't we, do we have, like, Chechens roaming the street outside as a thank you to you? If you did me wrong in this interview. You'd be, yeah, you'd be in trouble. I, I could call a million guys <laughs> in your house's doors. Is that, is that a threat, Hal? <laughs> thank you so much for coming out. Of Thanks, course, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. 
Was it, was it two, was it two guys? It's a great bumper. 